Hello and welcome to The Hardy Report. I'm your host, Edward Hardy, and for today's interview, I'm joined by TYT Investigates Managing Editor, Jonathan Larson. Jonathan Larson, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Edward. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Before we get into the conversation, for those that don't know, could you tell our listeners what TYT Investigates focuses on, what that organization is examining and covering? The Young Turks is sort of a lefty progressive opinion outlet. And a few years ago, they decided to get into the original reporting business to, to not just do opinion, but to actually do old school, you know, shoe leather reporting. And uh, uh, so they brought me on to sort of oversee our efforts. And we we don't have the scope or the scale or the resources of the New York Times or anything like that, but we kind of try to find um, investigative opportunities where we think the mainstream media either aren't looking or don't necessarily do a great job. And so, uh, you know, I'm happy to say our, our star reporter is Ken Klippenstein, who's very famous on Twitter and has broken a number of important stories that, uh, especially in the national security realm, that have gotten picked up by, you know, major papers. Uh, we've also done a fair amount of reporting on the organization known as The Family, which is now the subject of the of a documentary series on Netflix. And so that organization is getting a lot of new attention. And more recently this year, I've been doing some reporting on Pete Buttigieg, uh, the presidential candidate from Indiana, South Bend, Indiana, uh, which, again, we were just looking at because not a lot of people had done a lot of vetting on him because he was the mayor of a small to mid-sized city. So we saw an opportunity and, and we went and took a look. So that's that's basically the ethos that drives us is where can we do reporting that matters on subjects that maybe aren't getting covered the way they might otherwise. You mentioned there about looking at the family, which is the subject of the new Netflix documentary. For those that watch it, they might be baffled by this group that they've never really heard of or thought of before. And when you watch it, to begin with, if you're not aware of the background of it, it can seem sort of possibly fictional rather than reality. What is going on with that situation there? And what did you find at TYT Investigates? <laughs> um, the the it, it in a way it is fictional. <laughs> that's that's one of their goals. They're uh, technically they're also known as the Fellowship Foundation, and the group has been around for decades. And primarily, what it's been has been um, sort of a, a nexus of people with loose affiliations, uh, Christian politicians uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, they have a uh, couple of different facilities. One in D.C on C Street and one uh, just outside in Arlington, which is sort of their, their corporate headquarters. They have volunteers working the grounds there, that kind of thing. And it's basically about Christian fellowship. It's about prayer. And overseas, they do, um, they stand up ministries and they support orphanages and things along those lines. And for decades, it was run by a gentleman named Douglas Coe, who was sort of one of these friend to president types. Um, he would he was routinely seen with Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, but also the Clintons. Right. The uh, Hillary Clinton has spoken warmly and movingly about Douglas Coe. And the the group was faulted for essentially not having any barrier to access. If you were a powerful person who was committing genocide in Africa, 
they would want to meet with you. They would want to connect with you. Um, and they weren't necessarily pushing against those genocidal impulses. They were just primarily trying to make the connections. And so that's where they came in for a lot of criticism, especially when it, they were seen to be facilitating things like uh, anti-gay legislation in Uganda. And um, under Doug Coe, they were very sort of scrupulous about trying to maintain a bipartisan image and bipartisan access. And so, as I, you know, I mentioned the Clintons, they weren't the only ones. Jimmy Carter is featured in the documentary. Uh, so it was not at all unusual. Al Gore uh, is mentioned, I believe, as, as having personal connections with Doug Coe that have become public. So it was, it was relatively ecumenical in the political sense for decades. Doug Coe died in 2017. And our reporting focused quite a bit on what's been going on since then. And it's not entirely clear who's in charge, at least not in quite as clear cut a way as it was when Doug Coe was alive. But one of the things we found was that um, the, the sort of, uh, there's less of an interest or effort being made to, to maintain that bipartisan image. Uh, one of the leading, uh, one of the most public faces is a gentleman named Douglas Burleigh, who's been on camera uh, defending President Trump, for instance. Um, one of the group's mega do uh, donors, biggest donors, is a GOP mega donor, uh, a billionaire who has given millions of dollars every election cycle to elect uh, Republicans and literally spent the um, the 2018 midterms, uh, he was at the White House with Trump watching the election returns come in. So that's that's kind of the broad strokes of, of what we've been looking at um, in the in the period after the period that's covered by the Netflix documentary. The family and the series that is available on Netflix and the reporting that you've done acknowledges how these outside groups can have huge influence and unseen influence a lot of the time on American politics. How can the media and reporters do what you're doing by covering this story and making people aware of what's going on here? Because there are other groups we're seeing now more reporting of what the NRA does, for example, and how they lobby and have influence on politicians. So how can the media do more to let the public know what's going on behind the scenes well, it's an interesting question, and and I I hate to sound cynical about it, but in some ways there's already a lot of good reporting out there, right? The documentary series on Netflix that represents some good reporting. The New York Times they did a, a very good report on how the National Prayer Breakfast, which is the sort of premier event sponsored by the family, has become sort of a, a lobbying a, a mall for lobbyists. Uh, to make their, their connections. And of course, the National Prayer Breakfast famously figured into, just like the NRA did, figured into the, the FBI's affidavits regarding Maria Butina and Alexander Torshin, the, uh, the Russian, the, the sort of lead Russian involved in efforts to make connections here in the U.S. So the, some of that reporting is already out there. Typically what happens, though, the, the reason I said it's sort of a cynical answer is that um, I think all media outlets have an obligation, or at least should feel an obligation, to not just do the reporting, but also think 
here's the cynical part, in showbiz terms about how do we roll out this information and how do we uh, make it stick in a way that gives it traction so that it just it justifies future reporting. So that's, that's something we think about, for instance, when we did reporting on um, the family uh, and, the, and the potential erosion of that bipartisan spirit, we called up a number of Democrats afterwards, right? We did a follow-up story to say, where are you on this? Do you support the group? Do you plan to go to the National Prayer Breakfast? So um, I actually did an interview with Jeff Charlotte, the author of the books that the family is based on, who spent time as in their ranks um, uh, for a, a month or so as a younger man. And um, and he, he said that the Times piece that I was referring to earlier was great, but he, he in, in the interview with me, he said, but there's no follow-up. And so I think it's very important, especially in this day and age, and I suspect we'll get to this more. It's very important, I think, in this day and age to sort of make a commitment and say, we're staying on this story, right? Because it's very easy to, for, if you're the subject of a story, to make it go away if you know this is just a one-time occurrence, hold your breath, the wave will pass over, and then we'll be back in business again. One thing that's happened to the media and the way that they cover news now is the Trump administration. During the 2016 presidential election, the media was overwhelmed by the vast amount of misinformation and fake news that was spread online. And even by some politicians, the clear disregard for telling the truth. The media wasn't really expecting politics to take that turn back in 2016. And so probably wasn't truly prepared for it. But what steps do you think the media has taken or needs to take to prevent the same situation occurring in 2020 or in the future? So um, I think that's a vital, vital question. I think the answer to what steps have they taken is probably, I would say, none. But I think in their defense, what they would say is they've they've shown a willingness and an investment in um, challenging uh, the president and or political statements uh, in a more open, less, frankly, less respectful way. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly don't have a problem with that, but it doesn't it doesn't really address what I would suggest goes to the second part of your question, which is what should they have done? And here's where I think maybe you and I will differ a little bit, but I, I tend to think that the worst problems the media have right now with Trump reflect problems that they had before Trump. And I also tend to think that it's less about catching, uh, it's less about fact checking and, and gotcha, uh, you know, gaff pinpointing than it is about story selection. The, the decision about what to cover, I think, is much more uh, potentially pivotal than, than how they cover it. And so that's why I tend to think that the problems were there beforehand, because we, we, we know, I think, on some level that the decision-making process, this is not a super refined, rigorous intellectual process, as you might find in some other professions, right? If you're a doctor, you go through, I hope, I really hope, you go through a rigorous process to, to determine what am I looking at and what should I be doing? 
in journalism, especially in television journalism, I would say, the process is, oh, that's interesting, end of process. And so we had that before Trump, and we are, we, it, 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 I think, enabled Trump, and it also empowered him, and it brings out the worst of media, but I don't think it's going to end even when he goes away. I think the media are going to, in fact, pat themselves on the back for returning to exactly the same dynamic that, that got us here. You think the media organizations are more driven by getting clicks, getting people onto their site than they are by covering news in the way that it should be covered and addressing what's going on in the way that it needs to be addressed, even if that's a bit boring. Instead of taking news seriously and looking at it in detail, they're more interested in having a headline that people go, oh, I'm going to click on that. I'm going to go through to that site and read that story. I that that may be true, but I do think that so we're talking about different media here, right? There's there's clicking and then there's watching. And then, of course, there's watching by way of a click. Um, but I, w I want to address what you said about it being boring. And I think that's the sort of underappreciated aspect of successful journalism, which is if you do it right, it's not boring. Um, and and I think, you know, Glenn Beck, I'm not sure if, if all of your listeners are familiar with him here in the U.S., but he used to have an hour-long show on Fox News that did very well, and he would do an hour in front of a chalkboard on the Federalist Papers, and it would do it would do fine. I used to work on a show that was considered very wonky called Up With Chris Hayes, and we, we once did 45 minutes on patent reform. And I'm not saying we killed it in the ratings, but we that's how you build an audience is by by being willing to explore uh, complicated, potentially wonky issues in a way that, that makes clear what the stakes are and that it matters. And that takes storytelling ability. And I'm not saying I'm super great at it, but in general, there's very little training done, right? And, and the, the sort of formula that I always have for what a journalist should be able to do is one, be able to recognize a story that's important, even if it does not feel important on, intu on an intuitive level to you. And then two, be able to tell that story in such a way that it does feel that important to the people listening to it. I suppose a good example of covering a topic that might seem dull when you pitch it by title, but presenting it in a way that's interesting to the viewer would be what John Oliver's been doing on Last Week Tonight, is that he'll do these half an hour episodes on seemingly the most mundane topic, but in a way that's interesting. That's how news should adapt or how it should return in your view then, is it? That it needs to cover those serious topics, but it needs to cover them in a way that is engaging to the audience. And you don't even have to go to comedy, right? Here's, here's sort of the, the amazing paradox of cable news. If, you, if you're inside the guts of a cable news operation, and I spent many years at MSNBC, for instance, the, the sort of driving directives there are do the interesting stuff, do the, do the stuff that, oh, my God, everyone's talking about this and don't don't get in the weeds, right? Those are the sort of two prevailing dynamics that you find there. I don't know if that's true today. I'm not 
trying to dump on anyone or any show in particular or anything. And that's not unique to MSNBC by any stretch. And I've worked at other operations and it's been just as true there, right? Do the stuff everyone's talking about and do it simple. The paradox is that the top rated segment on MSNBC virtually every day does neither of those things, right? That's the first segment of the Rachel Maddow show every night. It's the longest segment on, on the network every day. And typically it's all about the relationships of Russian oligarchs and shipping companies and so on and so forth. And that does better than everything else. But the, but the directives don't change to say, you know what, that thing that's succeeding, go do that. So I guess my point is that Rachel Maddow does something similar to what John Oliver does, except she does it every night and she does it without comedy. There's been a lot of talk about the concept of this post-truth era, something that's come from the way that Donald Trump, his campaign and his supporters treat the media, how they've reacted to the media coverage that Donald Trump has received. Do you think we live in a post-truth era where there's no real penalty for lying anymore from politicians? Well, I, 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 I want to back up for a second and say that I do kind of have a critique of how both the media generally and Democrats specifically responded to the attacks on the media. It seemed to me that, that they ought to have judoed the thing a little bit. When someone says it's fake news, it seems to me the response ought to be news isn't meant to be gospel. Just like science, these are not static things. These are a process. Journalism is a process. You are not meant to accept as gospel everything that's in the paper. You are meant to understand this is a, a journalistic outlet's best attempt, best endeavor to approximate what is going on at the moment. It's, it, it's, not, it's not meant to be lies, but they're talking to people who may not know everything, who may not have the full context. So when the when a, a news report says, so-and-so said X, we're not saying that X is true. We're saying it's true that so-and-so said it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so the best defense, I think, ought to have been, this is, journalism isn't supposed to be taken as gospel. It's supposed to be understood as a process that's ongoing. I certainly think that the norm of truth-telling for its own sake has been degraded and there is much less of a penalty for politicians these days than there used to be. It used to be, you know, Joe Biden, I think famously dropped out of one of his earlier presidential races for being caught having plagiarized something who knows how long ago or whatever it was. And now that seems hilariously Pollyanna-ish. But, but I would say that there is some penalty for not telling the truth. And I think I think it can be a little misleading to think that Trump doesn't have one, but but for a good a good reason, which is that he clearly has a floor, right, of people who either don't care or, in my guess, to a large extent, aren't paying attention. They've decided they like him and they don't watch the news. End of story. So but but the fact that he's at that floor pretty consistently, that is the consequence. If there really were no consequence for him lying, then his approval rating would probably be better, certainly among Republicans, but probably also generally speaking, because if people genuinely didn't care whether he was telling the truth or not, what he says sounds great. You know, we're at historic highs on in metrics 
all across the board. And by the way, he's not entirely wrong about some of those either. But obviously, there's more context to it. But if if everyone were just believing what Trump said, his approval rating would be, you know, in the 50s or 60s, I would I would uh, wager. So I do think there is a, a consequence. We just don't see it being cumulative because I think he's got a floor beyond which he's not going to go. He's reached the low level where everything left is people who will support him, whatever he does. He's just not picking up those people that are undecided, are swing voters, uh, aren't sure who they support, want more detail. I think that's right. I think that's roughly right. And, and I mean, we do tend to see that when when his policies uh, touch specific cohorts, uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of coverage these days about farmers in the U.S. who are not happy with the impact of tariffs on their uh, on their business. And some of those farmers voted for him and some of them are being vocal about not being happy about what's going on now. So um, but but to your broader point, I think that's roughly right They're They're you know, it's some people are with him, ride or die. In the past, fact checking used to be an important part of covering current affairs. There were entire departments in news organizations that were dedicated to monitoring what was said, I'm sure, as part of the work that TYT Investigates does, making sure that statements that have been made and the comments within stories in particular, but statements that are made in general, are based on truth and looking into whether or not something someone said or is claiming repeatedly is correct. But fact-checking in a way seems to sort of bounce off particularly this president with him not being faced by it. You mentioned, obviously, the impact it might have on the polls and the support that he gains, but he's able to keep continuing along the path of his presidency, despite blatant disregard for the facts. How is the media supposed to react to that? How are they supposed to respond when there's such a disregard for the truth? Should they be coming out and saying, these are lies on a daily basis? Should they be running fact checks for everything that is said? When he makes a speech, should they have a delay and then a ticker underneath, which <laughs> says that something's truth or false? How do they combat that? So I don't think that their current setup, the current formats they have are super well equipped to do it. You've got on one end of the spectrum, you've got um, operations that are literally devoted to nothing else other than monitoring every sentence, every utterance that comes out of his Twitter feed or out of his face for truth or falseness, right? Um, but I tend to think that what those efforts end up looking like is sort of a litigation of his character, of his, of his essence, right? The, the mounting numbers are, end up being important as some kind of litmus test of who he really is. And so, so it ends up just becoming an exercise in litigating his nature. And I think people make their own determinations about what someone's nature is, or they don't. I, I actually kind of think in some ways it's a more grown-up approach to not address someone that way. To me, the ideal scenario would be one in which the, the news outlet 
focuses on things that matter rather than taking a sort of monarchist, no offense, approach to, you know, we have an utterance from on high, we must assess it and, and divine its true meaning, you know. Um, people are going to say dumb things, and if there's no real impact to it, then the news shouldn't cover it. Who cares? Um, I would much rather see them do a, a sufficiently good job of educating people about what the issues are that his statements will sort of be self-revelatory. You won't need someone sitting there going, eh, you know, false, because people will reading your coverage will have a sufficiently good understanding that it'll that it'll be self-evident on the note of the way in which people should respond to falsehoods and truths and fact checking from politicians there is this accepted problem with the rise of fake news in society now and it's not just political figures that are lying but you see it from even members of the media who will willfully and deliberately spread misinformation or mischaracterize what happened in order to benefit their agenda and push through their vision. How do people address that problem of fake news and reach through to the individuals who are being essentially brainwashed by fake news and convince them to sort of hear the truth? So... I think I have a horribly depressing answer to this, which is I think the solution to that is one of biology and that we're literally looking at um, the, the solution is going to be evolution, right? And what I mean by that is when the, when the internet was first dawning, I kind of had this thought to myself that, you know, we're going to, without gatekeepers, right? Everyone sort of decries the role of journalism as gatekeepers, but without gatekeepers, Everyone has to figure out for themselves, how do I know what to believe? And, and less, less examined is the question of, how do I know what should I pay attention to in the first place? And our instincts, literally are, are, are the, the hardwired in our brain instincts for how to handle information are not good at that. We respond to things like certainty, right? Which, which literally we've been, our, our human, the human psychology is programmed to believe someone who acts certain over someone who acts uncertain. And of course, in our, in our respective fields, whatever you are, if you're a doctor or whatever, you tend to know that as people get more knowledgeable about something, they become less certain about why it happens and what exactly is happening because they understand it more profoundly. And, you know, so we actually believe precisely the wrong people. And that's a big part of the problem is that without the gatekeeping, we're exposed to and drawn to people who are precisely the people we should not be listening to. And we have no mechanism that's helping us understand, does this matter? Does it, does it not matter? So a lie about president from president Trump, for instance, seems important because we think it's telling us something about who he really is. It feels like a, a clue to a mystery, and that feels very important when, in fact, the new labor uh, updated data might be much more important to actual people's lives, but it's not as interesting, and so we don't respond to it the same way. So I think we need a few, you know, just maybe as little as a million more years of human evolution. <laughs> but I do think, not to be, not to be um, 
cynical about it, but I do think there are mechanisms, especially in, on, uh, in social media, that news organizations can think about doing to sort of code or signal this is fluff, this is BS, this is diversion, this matters, right? We used to have front pages where we knew that's where the important stuff goes and the, uh, and the, the diversions went on the lifestyle pages. On Twitter, you don't have that. On Facebook, you don't have that. All you have is the, this raw, uncurated stream of information, which means your instincts, which are terrible, <laughs> are the only gatekeepers. We'll come to social media in just a second, but one question that I have for you as someone who works in the media, you're a managing editor, you understand how the media works, but you also have an approach you take to the way that you believe that news should be covered. Why do you think that there are news organizations, Fox News in particular, that have abandoned the old rules of honest reporting and are now more interested in sharing and promoting spin as truth instead of actually reporting the news and the facts? So I don't think they think that – I don't think they would agree with that statement. I don't – I think there are people – who are well-intentioned at Fox, um, who think they are doing good jobs. And there may actually be some people who, who really legitimately are. I've met people, I've known people who work there, and, and they said, you know, yes, of course, there were things about it, especially on the opinion side. And I think it's important for people to understand that, if they don't already, that, that their evening programming is meant to be the opinion pages, right, where the hosts can, can just get up there and say, immigrants are invading the country, and they've got to be stopped. And then they have, during the daytime, they have what they consider their, their straight news. And I think they think they're following the rules. But journalism is one of the, especially TV journalism. I started off in print, and I was kind of shocked when I went into, um, and I, I, I never, you know, I never had any professional training. And I was kind of shocked when I made the leap from local news, local news reporter, to working for a TV news network. And there was no kind of – it was evident that there was no real journalism training other than how to tell pictures with stories. So the the impulse to respond to, to things based purely on instinct is never beaten out of you in journalism in a way that it is in other professions, right? To go back to the question of being a doctor, the instinct used to be, well, they've got the vapors, so we'll have to put leeches on them, right? And that – those instincts, those terrible instincts are beaten out of people. And if you talk to anyone who's skilled in a technical profession, they'll usually tell you our instinctive responses to things are precisely the things you should not do. The reason we get educated is to unlearn what our instincts would guide us towards. And that doesn't happen in journalism. So it's instincts rule. And if you come in as a conservative, your instinct is going to be, oh, this story that is, you know, satisfies my confirmation bias, that story is important, and I'm going to tell it just as responsibly as I can. But in the meantime, you're still telling a story based on how your instincts tell you to tell it. You acknowledge uh, the fact that there are opinion shows on channels like Fox. Do you think for the average viewer, they don't see that distinction, that when news organizations or news channels conflate opinion shows and news shows, mixing them up in the schedule. So actually, the average viewer doesn't see the difference between them and 
believes that when they're watching an opinion show, that carries the same weight as the news show. I would, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I would say in some ways it's even worse than just saying it carries the same weight because what I was talking about earlier about, you know, certainty carrying the day, the opinion hosts will come at it with a lot more certainty. So it probably carries even more weight. The, the opinion hosts are seen as more credible because they're being authentic. They're willing to tell the truth. They, they have such passion. All of these things that should warn us away from them actually feel good and make it more rewarding to believe what they're saying. So I would say it's even, even, it carries even more weight than the supposedly fact-based reporting. But the other thing I, I wanna note though is that compared to the American population, the audiences for these shows are incredibly small. So it's not necessarily that the American populace is being influenced by the shows, by individual shows, whose viewership, you know, maybe one or two million out of a country of, what are we, 350 million or something like that by now. Um, the problem is more that what those shows decide to talk about drives a lot of the political discourse in this country. So they get to they get to sort of determine not necessarily what people think about things, but which topics we should be focused on. And that can be good in the case of drawing attention to, you know, immigration detention uh, centers, things along those lines. But it can also be bad in terms of drawing our attention to, you know, a blood vessel bursting in Joe Biden's eye or a map with Sharpie drawn on it in the case of President Trump and Hurricane Dorian, when there are probably more important things to focus on, right? If the biggest thing we're talking about coming out of the climate change forum uh, that the Democratic presidential candidates recently had is the uh, burst blood vessel in Joe Biden's eye, as opposed to, you know, the thing that's steadily eroding the human ecosphere, um, that's not good. And that's not because so many people watch the debate. It's because the the uh, the sort of trivial conversation that spins out of it determines what people are talking about and thinking about. Could the trivial conversation, as you put it there, that we get from topics like a blood vessel bursting in Joe Biden's eye or to go back to the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton stumbling as she's getting in a car, right. and those stories becoming you know, major news stories that are covered as if they are incredibly important when in reality they are just minor points that really carry very little weight. Do you think that's down to the rise of social media sites and the fact that there are a lot of newsrooms that obviously take stories from what's being discussed on social media? They see people talking about what's happening on social media and they cover those stories because they are aware that that's what people want to hear. Well, I think I think that's broadly right, but I also think that it's that it's important to to realize that the dynamic was there beforehand. Um, I I was fortunate enough to work with Dan Rather a year or so ago, and if I remember correctly, he was the source of a story about um, how the networks covered Vietnam. And in the earlier days of the Vietnam War, um, there was, I think, roughly a one-day delay in uh, between, you know, say, Hanoi 
and uh, the U.S. And so essentially the, the networks were, were sort of uh, forced consumers of whatever their correspondence sent them, right? They would just find out after the fact, oh, here's our latest report from Hanoi. And so the people on the ground were determining, here's what we should be talking about. And what happened, I don't remember the details, but apparently they put in some communication system so that they were able to communicate instantly, which meant now New York could say, we saw this in the New York Times today, go cover that, which means now the decision-making about what to cover was based on what someone in New York who, who only has you know, th that day's equivalent, that, that era's equivalent of social media, the New York Times, it, they're just responding to what they think is important from the New York Times. Obviously, the New York Times is a better so driver of what you should cover than is undifferentiated online content, but the same dynamic is there, that it's, it's and I found this too when I came into TV, was despite the, the, the appellation of TV news, there's a very strong institutional reluctance to actually break news or talk about something that isn't already being talked about. Like you said earlier, just now in your question, I think something about, oh, this is what people are interested in. If they're already interested in it, then they already know about it, and or at least they've already heard the news about it. And the job of the news is to get them to talk about something that you think is important, not to just regurgitate content that they've already been aware of. Do you think that because of the way that social media sites work nowadays, that there are a lot of people that use them to get their news content? You have sites like Twitter, which specifically has moments where they curate the news of the day on the site for their users. Do you think that those sites should be treated as publishers in the same way that news organizations are that they should be in some way responsible for content that's on their site. I had Joe Sestak on the podcast who's running for president in the Democratic primary, and he talked about how he believes that news organizations should be held liable in the same way that the New York Times would be held liable for something that's written about in its paper. Do you think that's how social media sites should be treated? Well, I think there's, I, I think ironically, journalistic organizations in some ways actually have more protection to, to issue quote unquote fake news than just average people do, right? Because journalism sort of is seen as an, as an institutional endeavor to get at the truth. And so it's protected when it makes mistakes. But to your bigger point, I think you're, I think, I think it's fair to say what you're saying, this notion of being held to a higher standard. But I also think in some ways that's happening in some ways organically. I think Twitter is grappling with it. I think Facebook is grappling with it because no one wants to be known as the propagator of false information, let alone toxic, harmful information. But I also think there's an interesting dynamic. I see it on Facebook in some ways, which is that uh, I started in local journalism and a lot of local journalism is bad. Like we talk about the death of, joke of of local journalism, but a lot of it's really pretty bad. And what what I've seen on Facebook in the in the vacuum created by the shrinking resources of local media is that you've got citizens filling that gap, 
So it's not necessarily that people are getting less information, but now you're sort of forcing citizens, just average people and not even citizens, I shouldn't say that, just human beings are, are doing the, the digging themselves and bringing things to light about their school board, about local budgets. It's, it's happening out there. In, and in some ways, it's better than what you get from uh, the, the, the remaining local institutions of local news. Now, to your point, when those people publish it on Twitter or on Facebook, that does in some de facto way make those institutions journalistic outlets now. And, and yeah, I do think they are, maybe I'm being a little uh, Pollyanna-ish here, but I do think they are genuinely trying at least taking the first steps towards figuring out what that means for them and what it should mean. We could continue talking about the media and the way it should cover news, particularly nowadays with how in-depth the topic is. We could continue talking about it for, for, I'm sure, hours. But one last question that I'd like to ask you about. There was a Hill-Harris poll that was released recently that found that 51% of Republicans, 35% of independents, and 14% of Democrats believe that the press is the, quote, enemy of the people. And a Gallup poll, again released recently, found that less than 50% of Americans have a great deal or fair amount of trust in the media to report the news, quote, fully, accurately and fairly. Do you think that the damage the media has sustained, particularly in the last few years from the relentless onslaught that it's received from politicians, from supporters of certain politicians. Do you think that damage is going to be long-lasting, or will the media be able to recover and regain that trust that it, it's possibly lost over those last few years? Look, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, the media have gone through this before, right? Nixon and Agnew, uh, Agnew were, were famously adversarial towards the media, and you always have a cohort of the American population that will side with their party's president against the the media. But I do think that it will be, it will not be short term, uh, the damage inflicted by President Trump. But I think the reason it will not be short, I, I think, look, I, I do think that most of the things that uh, a lot of Trump supporters believe are relatively ephemeral, and they're just responding to the certainty and the the braggadocio, and they like that, and so they they're willing to sign on to whatever they believe. So they say fake news, but then if you talk to them off, you know, one on one individually, they're like, yeah, yeah, it's just a goof. Calm down. So I don't think these are necessarily deeply held beliefs, and I also think the Democratic support for the media in the poll you talk about is not so so uh, high either. I think a lot of that reflects them wanting to take a position that's anti-Trump. I think the long-term problem for the media is not the attacks by Trump, but the self-inflicted damage. And I go back to 9-11, um, right, September 11th, 2001. People tend to forget this, but the the big story prior to um, those the attacks of that day was the mystery around a missing... A uh, girl in Washington, D.C., Chandra Levy, I think her name was. And that's what everyone was talking about. But in reality, at the time, there was already serious stuff going on in Afghanistan that that merited a lot more coverage. There were uh, the USS Cole had been attacked the year before. There were a lot of 
real substantive reasons that the news media should have been att paying attention to more serious, maybe even, dare I say it, boring issues. Same thing, I, I had a conversation once, I was at CNN, I had a conversation once with someone there about uh, a Bush budget proposal, and someone there said, budgets are boring. Well, budgets ended up becoming the rallying cry for the Tea Party, which was a massive moment for Fox News and helped them tremendously. So if, if you think something's boring and you don't cover it because it's boring, that's you're now saying, I'm in it for the ratings. And when you say, I'm in it for the ratings, you're basically saying, don't trust me because I'm in it for the ratings. So I do think a lot of it's self-inflicted and I don't see a lot of signs that they're going to fix those issues um, in the post-Trump era. Jonathan Larson, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It was, it was, really, uh, it was really fun. And as you said, I could obviously go on for hours. Thank you. That was TYT Investigates Managing Editor Jonathan Larson. You can find out more about him on Twitter at JT Larson, TYT Investigates at TYT Investigates, and the Young Turks at TYT.com. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.